I'm columnist Margaret Lyons. Here at Panoply, we're trying to learn more about our podcast fans. We want you to tell us about the podcasts you enjoy and how often you listen to them. So we created a survey that takes just a couple of minutes to complete. If you fill it out, you'll help Panoply to make great podcasts about the things you love and the things you didn't even know you loved. To fill out the survey, just go to panoply.fm slash survey, or you can click the link we've provided in the show notes for this episode. That's panoply.fm slash survey, or click the link in the show notes. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to a special edition of the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, television critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. We'll be talking today to Ray McKinnon, the creator of Rectify, which airs Thursday nights at 10 on Sundance. McKinnon was an actor for years before he became a showrunner. You probably remember him as the reverend on Deadwood who quoted Corinthians at the end of the funeral for Wild Bill Hickok. The body is not one member but many. He tells us, The eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble. And those members of the body which we think of as less honorable, all are necessary. He, he says that, There should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one to another. Rectify tells the story of Daniel Holden, who went to prison as a teenager for the rape and murder of his girlfriend, only to be sprung almost 20 years later. Now Daniel finds himself struggling to understand a world that he barely got to know when the state sent him away. The question of Daniel's guilt or innocence is, of course, tremendously important to his family, to the town, and to the officials who sent him away, most of all but not so much to the show itself, which is a large part of the reason why Rectify stands out. This is a drama about a man who happens to have spent time in prison, not a crime drama. And as such, it's preoccupied with love and fear, certainty and ambiguity, loneliness and compassion, the stories that we tell each other, and the lies that we tell ourselves. We're very, very pleased to welcome Ray McKinnon to the Vulture TV podcast, I did a panel for a television festival in Austin where we discussed Rectify, and everyone was in agreement how remarkable it was that the show was not obsessed with his guilt or innocence, with determining definitively if he did or didn't do it. And I wondered, do you agree with that assessment? And if so, what is the thinking behind that dramatically? Well, I do agree that, yes, we did not focus on definitively whether he did or didn't do it, because then we would have had one episode, and we would, we would have had to find the next guy who either did or didn't kill someone, and, <laughs> and then we'd have to find the next one. And we'd be a big hit, and uh, we'd have uh, other versions of this all over the world, and, and I would have my own jet or something, <laughs> which would terrify me. Why would anybody want to fly anything? themselves. <laughs> yes, I want to make a lot of money so I can shit in my pants <laughs> trying to fly something in the air. That is not anything that makes me the least bit interested in making that kind of money. So I suppose the long answer is I, I didn't want this to be very successful, so I got <laughs> a way to keep more and more people from actually engaging in it because, you know, as some people have said, nothing happens. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I've described it as being more what I like to call theatrical cinema or or cinematic theater in the sense that we're getting to see people talk to each other and interact with each other in long scenes so that we can really observe them and rather than rushing through everything, which is the way most movies and TV shows tend to do it. Perhaps I'm more interested in the human condition than 
than anything and trying to find meaning in my own life and trying to figure out what it's all about. And maybe this show on some subconscious uh, Freudian level is just me continuing to try to explore the meaning of me being here and the, the meaning of us being here. I don't think there was a bigger picture plan to explore or not explore things. It, it just evolved. I, I will say that, you know, one reason there are wrongful convictions is that people need closure. People need to know what happened. And we can't always know what happened. So uh, oftentimes the prosecution will, feeling the pressure of the public, ambition, and in some cases they're just completely unethical, but that's not always the case. They come up with a narrative that they then go seek evidence or circumstantial evidence to make that narrative feel true when it's not always true. Taking that along with, in storytelling, we often tell stories in a way that gives us closure, you know, denouement, whatever it is that that makes us feel like we understand the world better, and therefore we don't feel as uh, afraid or or feel the the chaos of the world or or the happenstance of chance, and that gives us comfort. You know, on some levels, I, I just wanted to go against that because at the end of the day, there are plenty of crimes that happen that we never truly find out what happened. And right. whether that, that'll be the case for this show, if I do know, I'm not telling. <laughs> well, you mentioned the idea of people being invested either in a narrative or maybe even in the perception of a narrative, that it's so important for our minds to have this idea of, of closure or things being definitive. That's something that Carl Daggett, the sheriff, is is very much obsessed with, and Roland Folks who was the prosecutor who convicted Daniel, and he's now a senator. So he has this very immediate political reason for wanting to reestablish Daniel's guilt. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the debrief scene. You were there in the room. You asked me what happened. You said you didn't remember. Well, at first I, I didn't, but then you kept showing me these pictures trying to explain but it still didn't make any sense i was numb i'd been in that room for hours so i just said what i i needed to say to get out to see my father you let me say it I let you say what you wanted to say, Daniel. I let you unburden yourself. Maybe the details were foggy, but the truth was as clear as day. It remained so. You said I could go home. I talked about this with my colleague Margaret Lyons, also a vulture. I didn't get the impression that he necessarily said I, I killed her. I thought that what he was saying was... I confessed to killing her, which seems like a fine hair to split, but that's what I got out of it. Could you, to the degree that it's possible, clarify that a little bit, or at least talk about what your sensibility was going into that scene, writing it? 
I'm always not uncomfortable, but but ambivalent about explaining what a somewhat interpretive scene and behavior means, because that that is partly why we did the scene. You know, it, it is left up to the interpretation of the people watching it. Different people will see it through their own subjective lens and come up with different conclusions. And I don't want to say if any of them are right or wrong. You know, that's a part of, I think, what makes this kind of storytelling compelling. But as far as why that debrief took place, why the senator needed what he needed, and why Daniel agreed to do what he did, it seems somewhat self-evident on the senator's side that his whole career is built upon this case, and or at least the foundation of it was on this case. And uh, he wanted to re-prosecute, but he found an opportunity here to have Daniel reconfess and also get out of the sticky issue of whether he Daniel raped Hannah or not. And for Daniel, you know, I, I just I don't think I want to understand completely why Daniel does everything he does. I think, like many human beings, he is he is part enigma, and he is paradoxical, and uh, a contrarian and. And in his case, he's he's deeply, uh, he's disturbed, you know, and he's sick. That brings the question of was the sickness, you know, the chicken or the egg? Was it before he went to prison or was prison the main, and, and the event leading up to prison, the main cause of his sickness or a combination of both? And that's something, um, you know, that we delve into some. The coffee grounds. Yes. The coffee grounds. I wondered. I wondered uh, immediately, and and many times after that, is this learned behavior? Is this something that he he is capable of as a result of having been in prison, or something that he was always capable of? That's a good question. It's not a question that that I would care to speculate on at this time. You yeah, know? of course. It may be frustrating to some people in the audience to not have definitive answers regarding both the crime and Daniel's motivations, but. That's life. Life happens that way. And I think for people who are interested in the show beyond that, there are a lot of things we explore that hopefully they they still find intriguing and fascinating. I think one thing about this season is we're, we're going to investigate another death. And our capable sheriff, who unlike the senator, is not driven by ambition or greed. He's not an unethical man. It was curious to me to watch someone go about with the best intentions of trying to solve this death and see if he comes up with the right or the wrong conclusion. But but whatever he comes up with, it'll be for the right reasons. He wanted to find the truth, and he wasn't so driven by ambition that he was willing to overlook things or cheat or or withhold evidence and that kind of thing. And so that was another opportunity in real time for us to explore the psychology of of investigation and the psychology of our need to understand. Understanding and the need to understand is something that's already come up a lot. But I also have sensed and have written about, and and I've seen a lot of other people talking about this too, the, the idea of this as being a spiritual or a religious show. Like I would even say a Christian show, if it were possible to say Christian with a small c, 
Is that something that's in your mind, or is it something that is incidental to the writing that you do instinctively? You know, again, I'm analyzing something, in some cases, after the fact. When I first wrote the pilot, I didn't think in terms of what this show could be labeled. I thought in terms of what would happen when a guy who's been in a box got released on the first day of his release. And the second day was basically, I think, two days. And then when I thought about the other characters that would would be a part of this story, I thought about their experience of those two days. And, you know, Tawny was a was a character that, that I created that I wanted to represent a kind of Christian that that hopefully had a third dimension to her because there are people like that in my life all around and, and I wanted to not have a two dimensional version of someone who was a Christian. So, you know, that was one of the tasks and that's one of the great things about a series. You can you can explore a little little deeper. I think at the end of the day, for me, this is a humanist story, and that encompasses one's belief system, or in some cases, lack of belief system, and that includes in the South and many parts of our, most all parts of our country, uh, Christianity. So that's just one of the elements and one of the belief systems that people have in this story. Another is the belief of family, you know, and, and that being the glue. So uh, it's a family story, you know, and then it's also as Daniel tries to make sense of his life, as others do, it's an existential story. So it's, so it's all of those. It's also a story of a man who has educated himself. That seems tremendously important as well, the way that he speaks. And he's a reader, and he expresses himself in kind of flowing poetic language, almost like a, an ongoing monologue with the world. At one point, I think it's in an episode that's coming up, he's out in the park and he talks about reading outdoors, being able to read a book outside and what a pleasure that is, which I guess is a pleasure that most of us take for granted. Except me, because I've been in an editing room for months. (laughs) Whenever I go outside to the park and start reading, I'm going to start sobbing in front of a woman with her child and she's going to take the child and run. You know, it, as I delved more into both the, the history and the psychology of this character, it, it was it was interesting to me to think of someone who, in on one hand, had this kind of knowledge that comes from reading books by very wise and observant human beings, and at the same time have so little knowledge and savvy about how to deal with the day-to-day existence of the real world. Right. And this, you know, this kind of uh, contradiction of philosophies within the, you know, within this one person. That that was, that's really interesting to explore. And and certainly it felt more so in the first season and then into the second. One of the questions that I've had, and, you know, can Daniel make it in this world? outside of whether he did it or not, can he become a kind of citizen that plays by certain rules that most citizens are required to play by and find some kind of meaning under that system? And uh, the jury's still out. Can you talk a little bit about your writing process? And by that, I mean the actual process by which a script gets 
written? Or do you sit in the chair and stare at the screen or the page? Or are you walking around and talking? Are you working out with people? How does it? How how does it? How does it work? I wish opiates didn't have a downside because I think maybe that would be the best way to you know just take a lot of opiates and <laughs> dream. But but unfortunately, that doesn't always go well. Uh, I mean, all of the above. You know, in something like a series where there's a limited amount of time to figure out the structure of, a, of another season, it, it really is helpful to have bright, creative human beings having discourse about, you know, possible plot lines and and continuing to d- discuss the psychology of the characters and where they are in this particular time and where we want to go. And, and uh, it's a little bit like, you know, math art where... Well, if we do this and that adds to that, then that could lead to that. And do we really want to go there? And then we back up and we head down the, the next road. So that's part of it. It was interesting. In episode two, we we had, in the writer's room, broken the story in a general way. And, and then I got in, started writing. And then you get up and you go walk around and you're letting the story and the, the characters fester in you and you're and you're starting to think of things and that you didn't discuss in the writer's room. And before you know it, I'm sitting down really writing a three- or four-page monologue by Teddy that, you know, wasn't really planned. They were going to go to the house, and he was going to observe Tawny. And the details of that just manifested out of that whatever happens when you're, you know, in that creative, uh, when, that, when that muse is around, and it felt really it felt really right and i thought well we're not gonna there were other scenes that were gonna follow that scene but i felt like that was the end of the show so it's a bit classical and a bit jazz do you ever feel that sensation that i've heard some other writers describe where it's as if the characters are coming up to them and saying hey i want to tell you about something I think I've always felt like that, certainly with my training as an actor where I try to understand the characters that I'm going to play. In some ways, I I mean, I play all these characters. After I wrote that monologue that Teddy Jr. does with uh, Jared in episode two of this season, and I just, I had to call up Clayne, and, and, and I literally did my version of it over the phone to him, and he loves it. Or he claims to. So, <laughs> so, and I've done that before. I've called him, you know, I did that the season before. So I always play the characters and then I give them over to the people who now play them. Hmm. After I've written a scene or something, I, I play the scene out to see how, how it feels. And, you know, I do a really, really interesting Janet. I, I think. <laughs> I'd love to see that. <laughs> <laughs> So you contain multitudes. I guess as long as they're not all talking at the same time, that works. That's true, yes. It's not so different from when I was a kid and I had all these stuffed animals and they all were characters that we played pretend with. (laughs) I wondered if I could ask you just a little bit about Deadwood and specifically its effect on you as an actor and a writer. Were there any uh, lessons that you learned from that or experiences that informed Rectify? You know, as an actor, it was by far the best role I'd ever played that I didn't write for myself and, you know, say, I'm playing this character. <laughs> it was the the first time that, that someone in the business had, had given me a role with the kind of extraordinary depth and nuance that that character had. It was, it was, you know, one of the great acting experiences of my life, and I'm forever grateful to 
David Miltz for giving me that opportunity just merely as an actor, you know, watching him as, as a storyteller from the very beginning and inception of that show and watching how it wasn't all planned out. And he would take what actors who were playing the characters gave him, and he would be inspired by that and come up with something that would add to it. You know, it was a symbiotic relationship between actor, character, and, and creator, and and that's something that, that I learned from, for sure, in watching how he thought about the the whole system of Deadwood, you know, the sociology of it, along with the smaller moments of humanity or smaller moments of unhumanity, <laughs> depending on how you looked at it. It was a great education, and I think all of us who were on there were just, you know, very grateful to be a part of that experience, and we knew it was uh, was rare. Were you raised religious? I ask because I always picture the preacher on Deadwood when I see your name. <laughs> Uh, yeah, of course. I grew up in Adel, Georgia, and it runs through my veins. Did you ever preach? No. No? No. I'm, somebody sends as, send as much as I have. I, yeah, there's, <laughs> I think Hollywood is right where I should be. All right. Well, I really appreciate your talking to me. Yes, same here, buddy. And that's it for this special edition of the Vulture TV podcast. I'm Matt Zoller-Seitz, TV critic for New York Magazine and Vulture. I hope you will join us again next week. 